on waking that morning, I thought, oh my God, it's a tummy bug or is it food poisoning? And I went to get out of bed and I couldn't walk. And the nausea was horrific and crawled on my hands and knees that morning to the bathroom, I remember. Desperately wanting to vomit and not able to. So I somehow ran, rang uh, my boss cover, I'll be off for one, two days at the most. 11 months, carried to the bathroom, looked as though you are going to die, felt as though you were going to die, lost about two stone weight because I couldn't eat, and then seven years in bed. And when did you decide to try the lightning process? My God, if they're saying, you know, if people are getting out of wheelchairs, I would have my wee paper circles in the hotel room and you had to practice all night, talking like I'm cured. And remember to speak positive terms only, do not be negative. So I rang my husband and told him I was cured. Um, it's brainwashing, it's brainwashing. So after the lightning process, um, you ended up back in the bed. But I knew what I saw with the four people that were there and none of us recovering because the reality was starting to set in. Oh my God, I've just been conned. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of the Medical Error Interviews podcast. When people are very sick and suffering, especially for months and years, they are desperate to try almost anything to have even a little improvement in their quality of life. This makes patients susceptible to shysters preying on that desperation. Like the snake oil salesman of yesteryear, Today, we have their modern incantations and must contend with their psychological snake oil. For a while, Joan McParland metaphorically drank the snake oil-laced Kool-Aid. Joan had been very sick and bedbound for years with the neuroimmune illness myalgic encephalomyelitis, which literally means inflammation of the brain and spinal cord. Joan was desperate to try anything so that she could be well enough to be the healthy mom she used to be for her son and to return to the work she loved. Joan paid big money to participate in the lightning process, 
a program that professes to treat all sorts of chronic symptoms in just three days. Evidently, this is not some benign distraction. It has been reported that a Norwegian teen tried to commit suicide after failing to improve from the lightning process. In the three-day program, Joan and other participants were told not to share anything about how the lightning process works with anyone else, or to talk to each other about the lightning process, and to only talk about themselves in positive, healthy language, and to tell people that they were cured. Some people even had to sign contracts with those constraints. But Joan is not one to be complicit in promoting self-blaming brainwashing and is telling the truth about what secretly happens in the costly lightning process. And it works basically like this. You stand on a piece of paper that has stop, I have a choice written on it. Then you say that aloud. Two arrows point to your choices. One arrow points to a piece of paper that has the pit written on it. This represents your symptoms and illness. The other arrow points to a piece of paper that has the life I want to lead written on it. You choose which paper you want to stand on and then say that aloud. And that's it. You do that repeatedly and it will cure you. So doing a little bit of Googling, and it turns out that both the British Advertising Standards and the Nordic Consumer Ombudsman have ruled against the lightning process for making false claims on its website. It has been described as quackery backed by pseudoscientific theory and as a costly pyramid scheme since people who train in the process frequently go on to become paid practitioners themselves. What makes it really dangerous is that dubious researchers have subjected children to it. It is unclear how the Research Ethics Board allowed children to become guinea pigs since the program was described as like CBT but with bullying. When Joan continued to be very sick, she realized she'd been conned. She had told her family and friends she was cured, but in reality, she was just as sick and disabled as before. Joan felt used and abused, and also ashamed and embarrassed for being so gullible to pay large sums of money for something so obviously rooted in magical thinking and profit-making off the sick. But Joan's shame quickly turned to anger when she thought about how many other sick and disabled people were being scammed out of their money and made to feel it was their fault if they weren't cured. So Joan has set out to tell the truth so other patients don't fall for the same scam. You can support the podcast by subscribing on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. 
And if you need a counselor for your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Joan McParland and a word of caution that some people may be triggered by Joan's experiences with the healthcare system. Great. Thanks, Joan. Uh, so I like to chat with people in chronological order because my wee brain only works in sort of one direction. Uh, so I can sort of guess by your accent where you grew up, but uh, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Okay, I had a great childhood. Uh, I was an only child born in Bestbrook, Northern Ireland. That's quite near the border. Um, there wasn't much happening. It just was a happy childhood. Just normal, as I would call it. No major events or um, went through school, hated it. And then by the time I was ready to leave, started to love it. And then went back to college. Um, you know, took a year or two off then, decided I'll go back to college then and do something I really want to do, which was um, cookery and book work, commercial course. I think that's what they called it. So the two, the two things together actually came together great because I got a job um, organizing school meals. So I had a certain amount of hands-on in the cookery end and then I done all the organization of ordering food, making menus, working out nutritional values, stuff like that. So I was doing a bit of brain work and book work and a bit of hands-on that I loved as well. So it was idyllic and um, the school that I worked in was just about 10 minutes drive from my home. And then as the years went on, I had my son and he went to the school, which meant I take him to school, I go to work, I take him home. We were off all the summer holidays in Northern Ireland. They got um, all of July and August off and then two, two weeks of Christmas, two weeks of Easter. Um, <clears throat> well, of course, I got married first. I forgot about that bit for the son. I got married and... Um, Love at first sight, the love of my life. Uh, we're married at 20, I think. Oh, we used to caravan, camping and caravan, um, cycles and all Stephen's friends, us and son. I would have usually ended up with the car full of kids coming home from school because they all congregated in my house. And uh, we had not a conversion, so you just let them go up there and have fun. And then one wee lad, his mum asked me to uh, look after him, but on a longer term basis. So the two boys became like brothers. And as I say, we caravaned the weekends, cycling, very outdoor type of people. You know, we had dogs, we did dog walks. So it, it probably wasn't 100% perfect life, but it was very near. You know, it was very close to it. It was a good life, really, really good life. And then boom. When did boom happen? Um, the 13th of October, 1999. Oh, so you had a very sudden onset. Some people have a sort of slow onset. Overnight. Yeah, overnight. A couple of wee warnings, maybe looking back now and knowing what Emmy is. Um, we were in France on a caravan holiday again. And I remember walking across to buy bread or something. And coming back, I got this whoosh across my brain. And I said, well, is the thing going to faint? I didn't faint, but it, it was so, uh, it was so um, 
intense. It was big that it, it scared the life out of me for a couple of hours. And I was thinking, what the hell was that? You know, there's something not right here. But then forgot about it because it was on holiday, obviously. And went on to have a great holiday. And that would have been about the holidays time we used to take in August. So August, September, October. So about 68 weeks later then. Boom. And so that was October 1999 when you had the acute onset. So what happened when you woke up that day? Oh, my God. Um, I thought working with the kids in school, you would have picked up an odd, uh, we call them a tummy bug here, gastroenteritis. On, on waking that morning, I thought, oh, my God, it's a tummy bug. Or is it food poisoning? It was a mixture between a tummy bug and food poisoning. And I went to get out of bed and I couldn't walk. The room, well, not the room was spinning. My brain was spinning inside my head. And the nausea was horrific. And crawled on my hands and knees that morning to the bathroom, I remember. Desperately wanting to vomit and not able to. So I somehow rang, rang uh, my boss. I was my own boss in the school, but this was the head office in the education board. And I rang and I said, look, I'm going to need cover. I'll be off for one, two days at the most. Because I've got a tummy bug. <laughs> so the two days passed. Um, a week passed, two weeks passed, and then you started to you know something not right here. And of course, our GPs would have um, did house calls. So my, I think it was my mom was looking after me at the time. And the GP came down and he said, um, uh, what does he come up with? Viral labyrinthitis because of the dizziness and all the rest of it. He was, he was put that down to the dizziness and the nausea. But I was so ill, I couldn't explain the symptoms because I didn't know that the reason I felt more ill was when the curtains were opened or when my mom was cleaning Hoover in the house. I didn't associate that with feeling more ill. You know, you're in a daze. So, um, so, so it, it sounds like at that time that uh, light coming in from the window or your mom using the vacuum cleaner so that sound would make you... Yeah. It did, but I didn't know. I, I couldn't associate the two together. I just knew when the curtains opened, you know, I was, oh God. And when the, when the hoover was going, I was saying, why is she cleaning this house? You know, please stop making a noise, mum. But never associated the two because I'd never been ill before. I don't, I, I couldn't associate it. You just don't, Scott, you know. And I couldn't associate the same way as I couldn't associate pushing to get back to work a year later and not knowing that that was killing me. I didn't know, you know. Mm-hmm. It seemed the right thing to do. Anyway, um, 11 months, carried to the bathroom, looked as though you were going to die, felt as though you were going to die, lost about two stone weight because I couldn't eat. Um, my husband would have lifted me out of the bed. It wasn't as big as I am now. <laughs> lifted me out of the bed, put me in the back of the car and drove into A&E. That's our um, out-of-hours doctor, right? And he would have injected me with uh, cyclazine. And that went on for months and months and months, dying and took in, injected with cyclosine. And then a different doctor was there one night and he said, you don't have to come in here with this nausea. You can have that in tablet form. 
And I went, oh my God, I wish I'd have knew that because it was crucifying me getting into them, you know. So that went on anyway. And then one morning I woke up and I thought, you know what, I feel a wee bit better today. And um, obviously got out of bed and done about a wee bit about the house or something and got back into bed and I thought, oh my God, I'm starting to recover whatever this virus is. There's no word of me, I don't think, at that stage. So uh, over the period of months, I got a bit better and a bit better. But the dizziness never left and the nausea never left. <clears throat> the energy was coming back and um, come back to a degree that I said, I have to get back to my work or I'm going to lose my job. So um, I struggled and I went back to work. My God. And excuse and so, me. Um, sorry, when was that, John, when you tried to go back to work? That would have been about a year after onset. Roughly about a year, excuse me. And um, but I wasn't, I wasn't physically able to go back to work. But I was pushing it and pushing it. So I would have lasted in work to about maybe one p.m. And then I would have just had to come home and go to bed to the next morning. And that's the way I lived for months and months, never ever associating that I'm pushing myself into illness. Why would you? You know, that, that's, that's a concept you don't ever hear tell of or, or know exists until you get ME. So, um, collapse then. Collapse and work. Uh, same thing again then. Back to bed for a number of months. I can't just remember the times exactly. But that went back and forward over a period of about two years. And then um, one day I went into work. No, my friend at work said, I think we could get you better if we try yoga or something like that. And I said, you know, that's a good idea. I really need more exercise. <laughs> so, um, we went to a yoga class that night, right? And there was me. And I remember trying to lift my leg up and all and thinking, my God, you know, I was only about nine stone weight. I can't really lift my legs up with this. Yoga, what's wrong? I come home, went to bed. And that was the last, I got up the next morning and all right. And I went into work and I wasn't 10 minutes in through the door and I fell on the floor. And then seven years in bed. What? Yeah. That two, that just over two years of pushing and crashing and pushing and crashing cost me the next seven. So wow. it was 10 in total. Mm. It was and a heavy price. Yeah. And so what was your doctor saying during all of this? I vaguely, I have, I, I'm in the bed now. I can see him standing at the bottom of this bed. And he said, I hope and pray we're not looking at severe Amy. That's all I remember him saying. I never remember him saying rest. He never said, I remember crying to him one day and said, but I can't get out of bed and I, I want to get up and I want to look after Stephen and I want to go back to work. He says, no, just lay in bed if you can't get out. Casually said that. If he had said, Joan, if you don't rest now, this could be the rest of your life. You know, if he had said something like that, it would have been a different story, but he didn't know to say that. You know, it's not, I don't blame him. He was very good to me really good to me and at that stage then about year going into the second or third year that's when me come up i think 
that's when he started to talk about AME. So he started sending me to all these different specialists, you know, cardiology and um, gastroenter, what do you call them? Can't get the words out tonight. Um, all different specialists of every description. And they were all coming up with different things. Uh, menis, menopause was the weirdest menopause I've ever heard of putting you in bed for a year, you know, and stuff like that. And then one, we started pay privately. My husband said, well, look, we're not, we're running out of options in the national health. So maybe if we go to a private clinic, we'll get answers. So we started then handing out money to go to private clinics. And one gastroenterologist said to him, take that wee woman to a psychiatrist. And I think that was the only day in the last 20 years that he doubted me. He said, Joan, I have something to say to you. These doctors can't all be wrong. And that day nearly broke my heart. I feel like betrayal. Thank God. It was betrayal. I felt like I was betrayed for that day. But thank God he knew me well enough. And, and you know, he stuck by me and he helped me. And now he backs this campaign as much as I do. In fact, he's out in the garage now making a wee surprise thing that I'll be putting on next week for awareness and education. You know, so without him, I don't know where I would be. I know, I realise how lucky I am, you know. My son grew up not knowing anything else, really, till he, what did he say? I think he was about 12 when I went down. And he was the same. He would have helped and went to all the... Uh, conferences that I do, you know, it was my son was carrying the stuff in and my mum was there making the tea and only for that family thing, I would not have made it because you got strength from them with their support in some way, you know, mm -hmm. horrific, absolutely horrific. Yeah, people but, who've never been sick with a very serious illness, like being bed bound for months, years, it's yeah. hard to conceptualize just what that does to your you life. Yeah, you can't. And at one stage, I doubted my own sanity because I said, well, all these doctors are telling me that there's nothing wrong. So this has got to be in my head. So I went to a psychiatrist and he said, I need to learn you how to relax. And you're really, your problem is you're just thinking too much about your bodily sensations. <laughs> that was it. So I didn't go back to him either. <laughs> I did, I doubted my own sanity and somewhere along the line, but look, to be honest, it was the lightning process that gave me my mojo. Because that made me so angry and that hurt so much that I come out of that not empowered to be well, to be empowered to do something about the bloody situation that I had found myself in. Yeah, so let's back up. And when did you decide to try the lightning process, as it's called, which is a... It was in between the really bad time. It was when it was really, really bad. So it must have been about... I was really sick when I went to it. I don't know, about two seven, I think. I don't know. Okay. I have dates up there somewhere. I should have had them prepared for you. Sorry. No worries. So in about 2007, you decide to try the lightning process. And what, what attracted you to the lightning process? 
Right. I had a relative who was a senior mental health nurse. Right. She was a lovely lady. And she sent me down a newspaper cutting of this wonderful new treatment for Amy. And I got it. And because I would have respected the lady and I read it and I thought, well, my God, if they're saying, you know, if people are getting out of wheelchairs. Oh, and there used to be an organization in Northern Ireland called um, the Northern Ireland Amy Association. And the lady did a newsletter. And in the newsletter, there was an article about the, pro the lightning process. And it was about some lady and bouncing out of a wheelchair within three days and all. And I was reading it and going, no. And then you're going, but what if, you know, what if that was your way out? Is it, I can't afford not to try it. So that was that. So I can't remember how you get in touch with them, but it was a phone call. And uh, that was the beginning then. The... They're supposed to be phoning you, Scott, to see if you're suitable. If you're a suitable candidate, that will do well in the process. So whether that means, are you stupid? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But they, they talk to you like, um, he, he could explain the symptoms of ME to you like an ME sufferer. You know, where you know, oh my God, yes, they've got it. Um, and he was going about the dizziness and the nausea and the exhaustion. He was going over all the symptoms. And you're going, oh my God, this man knows what he's talking about. He really knows. He's really had it. And then he starts asking you questions. You know, how much do you want to be well? And how, how willing are you to invest three days of your life now into getting well? Questions that you were never going to say no to. You know, and every time you got a wee doubt or anything in your head, he could settle you down and, and answer it. So you know, real salesman. Oh, sales. He, he obviously has been an insurance salesman at some stage in his life because he could have sold anything to you. And I'm not stupid, Scott. I'm really not stupid, but I was desperate. So we was playing on that. They're playing on that desperation. You know? okay, so you sign up for the three-day course that's going to cure you of ME. And yeah. uh, is, did it happen in your hometown? No. Um, he said, you need to make this a life-changing holiday, right? Well, I hadn't had a holiday from 1999. <laughs> so it was planned like a military operation. You went and stayed in a hotel about, well, about an hour and a half drive from home so my husband left he, he has to work so he left me and my mom down because I couldn't have went on my own and uh, we stayed in this hotel for three nights and you got a taxi then to another place about five minutes away and that's where you did the lightning process in this house that he had rented okay so tell me about the program right well it's supposed to be three days it's not three days it's from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. for two days, and the third day it finished at 12. That was, that's four and 48 and two, 10 hours total. It's not three days. It's over three days. The biggest shock to me was, 
because I wouldn't normally have been out of bed at that time of the day or had breakfast so early or that. I had my early breakfast. So at 12 o'clock, I was absolutely starving. And I was thinking, gosh, I wonder what we're getting for lunch, you know. <laughs> for 880 pounds, we got a cup of tea and a biscuit. Uh, 880 pounds, which is about eleven, twelve hundred dollars US for three days or ten hours. That's a pretty high hourly rate. Cup of tea and a biscuit, and you were allowed to go outside because I smoke. And one of the ladies, those four of us, one of the ladies smoked, and we went outside. And that's we're still friends. We made great friends. Uh, we went outside, but you were told when you go out, do not talk about anything that has happened in the room that day. Don't discuss it. And um, the only thing we talked about was how hungry we were then for the break. We talked during the whole break how hungry we were, where we lived, um, along with Head ME, things like that. And as I got to know the lady more, um, we became great friends. And over a period of maybe a year later, she told me that that was her third time doing the lightning process and that her husband had actually paid to come over just to do her and charged her something like one or two thousand pounds a number of years before that. They were so desperate. That was her third time. And she felt, she said, I couldn't tell you because I was so ashamed of being so stupid. Oh, so by the time she sort of confessed to you she had realized that it, it was not what it was purported to be when when we start yeah when we started to talk after you know after it was all over and we both ended up back to square one that's when she felt probably confident to say look joan you know because you were talking on the phone and remember scott you were told do never talk in anything only positive words positive terms so Paula and I used to have these stupid conversations on the phone. What did you do today, Paula? Well, or what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to get washed and showered and dressed and I'm going to go shopping. <laughs> you know, that, that's what you were told to do. So you were that scared and you were that probably annoyed about spending 880 quid. You were going to do that. You were going to speak in positive terms and try and do all these things. And as the time went on, our health was going down and down and down. And then we had to admit to each other, this is a load of crap. You know, it's mind games. So, yeah, tell me about the program itself. I read a little bit about what you've written and what it uh, sort of involved. It's all talking. The four, of, the four people are just sitting there in the city and it's all him talking. And I, there's bits I forget. He... Um, we had books and all, and he was showing you things like, oh God, what would you call them? Like optical illusions mm. and things. And you were going, hmm, you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know what he was waffling on about, but it all made sense the way he said it, right? And then they started, uh, I think it was the second day before they said to you, right, get up on your feet now. He was showing you how to do the process. And... um we, the, that's when we started to learn the, the um, affirmations and he would, he would say, take, your back, take yourself back to a day when you were happy. 
and you would take yourself back in your mind today, you were happy. You could have nearly felt that happiness. He wanted you to pull that happiness back in and have it today. Uh, what do you call it? Neuro-linguistic programming, is that what it is? I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, it's brainwashing. It's brainwashing. You know, because I was going home to the hotel then, but you were obviously working on adrenaline, I don't know. I would have my wee paper circles in the hotel room and you had to practice all night. And I'm standing, my mother's looking at me, standing paper circles, talking like I'm cured. And then he told you, ring anybody you have at home, that was my husband, and remember to speak positive terms only, do not be negative. So I rang my husband and told him I was cured. <laughs> Wow. So you had to, part of the lightning process is to stand on a piece of paper that says stop on it. Stop. Yeah. Stop. You have a choice. And you, your next week circle, you jump over onto the choice. Right? Stop. I have a choice. I can choose the pet circle or the life I love circle. So you go from your choose, and then you choose where you want to go back into the pit, as he called it, that's your ME, or go to the life you love. So you stand on your life you love circle. You're coaching yourself all the time. You become your own coach. That's what he's learning you to do. He's your coach during those three days or 10 hours, but he's learning you to become your own coach. You know, right. stop. I have a choice. I can choose the pit or the life I love. And then you have to do all the movements. You know, I choose the life I love. You know, say it and mean it. <laughs> <laughs> like you just crossed no, the finish line of a marathon. and <laughs> Yes, that's the way you do it. I choose the life I love. You know, oh, when I think of it. <laughs> wow. So I'm so, trying to visualize this. And so there's a piece poor, of paper that, that says stop on it. And when you're feeling yeah. uh, sick and your ME symptoms and you're feeling like crap, you stand on this paper and then stop. you move to the piece of paper that says choice. Yeah. But when you're on the, the stop one, that's when your affirmation starts off. Right. You're talking to your negative thoughts and your, your symptoms. Stop. And you do this, you know, stop. Can you see me? Yeah. Stop. And mean it, you know, stop. Stop the thoughts, stop the symptoms. You have a choice. I can choose the pet or the life I love. And at that stage, you're on your choice one and then you're into your pet or the life you love. Well, nobody's going to choose the pet. So the, for the folks who are listening, and if we were to apply this concept of the lightning process to somebody who has cancer and to think to tell them that they can choose to be cured through their positive thoughts Correct. and positive self-affirmations just sounds ridiculous and harmful. Correct. But not to a disease, Scott, that is supposedly in your mind. Right. Yeah. There's that whole narrative that ME is psychological and. Yes. That's how they're getting away with that. That's how they get away with it. You know, they're playing on the, they're playing on the fact 
that we don't have one single biomarker, one simple single biomarker. Um, at the end of the day, nobody can say they've got ME. You know, they can, or not say it, nobody can prove they've got ME. Is that the way to say it? Mm -hmm. So when you can't prove it, it can be anything. But okay. out of the four people, the four people who went, myself, ME, my friend, ME, um, a lady with depression, and a lady with fibromyalgia. None of the four recovered. Oh, so the lightning process just isn't, isn't just for ME, it's for depression, fibromyalgia, it's for like what ails you? Oh, you name it, yeah. You name it. Yeah. I'm, not sure all, I'm not sure which diseases they claimed at the start, but I, I have a notion they claimed MS as well. But uh, I, can't, I can't be sure of that. You'll need to check that out. Right. Yeah. So you did the three-day program. You come home. You continue to do the self-affirmations. Oh, yeah. yeah. Going to bed, get up in the morning, get in the shower. And you were going, oh, my God, this is miraculous. You became almost evangelical about it. You actually became almost even jar. If anybody had said to me, that's a load of crap, you would have argued, but no, it's not. And then he phones you in that period of that um, big high that you're on, right? He phones you during that period and asks you, would you go on the radio or would you go on TV? And attest to how effective the lightning process is. Which I would have. If he had rang me a week earlier than he did, I would have went on TV and radio. Honestly, it becomes, it's, he was like the Messiah to me. Really, that's how, that's how powerful it was. Wow, yeah, you want to believe that you can get it or that you can get better from being ill. You're so desperate after all those years. You're willing yeah. to believe. Anything. Anything. And then when did you st stop believing? I stopped believing when um, I would have felt the really bad Emmy heaviness coming back. The walking through treacle heaviness of Emmy started to creep in again. And inside of my head, I'm screaming and I'm going, please, no, no. Do the lightning process, Joan, do it. And I kept doing it and doing it and doing it till I nearly tortured myself. And... You know, there's a wee inner voice in your head. Oh my God, this isn't working. This is this is this was a con. This this rubbish. And they are saying, no, stop. Do the lightning process. Do the lightning process. So your mind is bouncing back days and weeks like this, and you're confused, and you're you're more upset because of the high that you've had. You know, on the day, the good days that you have had, and they were good days. Was there a single moment where the tables turned for you? Oh, well, you got those wee warning signs. You got the warning signs, but you were determined to overcome them mm. and uh, determined this was going to work. You had to be, Scott. And then, oh gosh, when did it? I know I ended up completely crushed back in the bed, but I can't remember between doing it and, and the day that I ended up back in the bed, more psychologically disturbed than I have been with anything about the whole disease. 
at how foolish you'd been being taken in and you felt fool and telling everybody you were cured. It's all that, you see. It's not just the, the money or... It's just you felt stupid, used, um, you name it. Mm-hmm. Abused. Right, and the shame that goes with that. Shame. Mm, that's another one. Yeah, I was ashamed. I was ashamed of being so stupid. Right, so I can sort of imagine there's the fear you're getting sick again and feeling worse. Anger that you've been taken advantage of and abused. Sadness that you're going to lose what you thought you were getting back. Yep. Mm -hmm. There's all that going on in your head. So psychologically, you end up in a worse place than you did before you did it. Uh, So it ends up being harmful. I would say so. I would say so. So when when your friend uh, confessed to you that that was her third time and that she wasn't better, how did you react to that? I was shocked. But at the same time, I could understand because I knew her desperation. But I knew what I saw with the four people that were there and none of us recovering. I knew um, I would never be doing it again. Because the reality was starting to set in. Oh my God, I've just been conned. The reality was starting to set in. So you ended up being bed bound again. And then what happened with your health? Compared to my full health, I'm running now on 20 to 30% of what my full health was. Way back before I got ME. If I don't get horizontal most of the day, nothing happens so after the lightning process um you ended up back in the bed mentally uh, yeah it was a tough tough time to come through it because it was like um the lightning process was your last hope you knew there was nothing else out there if this didn't work you were in serious trouble so you were dealing with all that in your head wow so how did you deal with that feeling of hopelessness Oh God, it was tough. It was very tough. Uh, there was lots of tears and oh, heartbreak and disappointment. And it was awful. It was a horrible thing to go through. And I can't remember how I got myself out of it. I didn't go into a depression. I went into a great sadness, you know. And then that sadness turned to anger. And I thought... I've got to do something about this. This this cannot go on. It cannot be that people are going to be able to abuse us and make fools of us and all. And somewhere inside, there was a match lit and I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to do something about this. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure going to try. I just got my mojo back, probably, probably with the support of my husband. And probably when I looked at my child and thought, no, you can't go on there mentally now. You can't do this to them. You know, all that was going on in your head. You can't do this. If you, uh, God help an ME patient that's on their own. God help them. But I, I don't know how you would fight all that now on your own, Scott. Really don't without some sort of family support somewhere. 
Yeah, it's terrifying to think of being with severe ME and not having families or supports. I don't know what you'll do. I don't know what you'll do. Sorry, I sometimes think about what happened with people back with ME in the 1800s and 1700s where did they just starve to death on their beds? Uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Who knows? The, the one thing that kept me seeing through the, the whole, oh, the really bad, severe bits, years and years and years, I remember um, we had a tree outside and I used to actually watch the seasons changing on that tree. And days you were laying here, frightened out of your life, convinced that you're going to die, just laying there, couldn't get out of the bed. And I used to try and count the leaves on the trees just to pass the time. Because I couldn't read, couldn't watch telly. Uh, so I, I lay here and, you know, I'd just look at them and try and count them. How stupid is that? Anything to take your mind off the situation that you were in. Because you couldn't physically get out and... um pass the time watching TV or go for a walk around like that. Do you know what I mean? You had to have something to focus on. And then every time my child walked down the hall, that was it. I thought, okay, better me than him. Mm. So it'd be hard for people to understand how, you know, they could understand how somebody could be so sick that they're bed bound. But how come you couldn't read or watch TV? That, that's hard for people to understand. I don't know how do you how do you convey that? Um, well, the re, the words just yeah, I couldn't make sense of the written word, you know. And, and if I was able to read two or three lines, there was words that I knew that were normal, but I couldn't read them. It was weird. Your whole brain seemed to flick a switch off somewhere. Um, as I say, I, I even got my books from work sent home and I can distinctly remember sitting at the kitchen table looking at a four-week uh, menu and I could not come up with one meal, never mind a choice menu for 28 days. I couldn't do it. I remember thinking, what is happening to me? You know, this must be a mental breakdown. Why can I not think right or think straight or get my thoughts into order? There would be a bit of clarity now and again, and then there would be a bit of um, your thoughts being all jumbled and just brain fried. Yeah, so severe cognitive impairment affecting your memory, comprehension, ability to focus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know the, a couple of times when I've been really sick that uh, watching TV, all of the Color seems so much brighter that it was They're vivid. Sort of painful. Every, yeah. yeah, everything's vivid. It is. Yeah, it is. And I couldn't follow the storyline anyway. You know, my husband used to say, "Come on, we'll watch a wee film." By the time the film was over, when I was able to watch TV, I didn't know what happened at the start, and I used to have to guess if he started to talk about it. You know, trying not to act like stupid and try and guess the answers to the questions that we're having a conversation about the film. And I hadn't a clue what we'd watched, <laughs> you know? And that, till, till today now, um, if, if the radio's on and my husband says something to me, I'm getting a wee bit of what he's saying in this year and a wee bit of the radio in this year, and I don't know then what anybody has said. Uh -huh. Like, it's all jumbled. So it has to be a one sensory input.
right? Your brain is no longer able to filter out what you don't want to listen to at that moment. No, no, no. You get the whole thing in the one go and it's just a jumble then. That's why um, I, I would, I, I feel physically able at times to go out for a meal and do things like that as long as there's no background music and as long as there isn't more than one or two people there because if they talk across each other or even people that come into my home and the t we talk across each other, I'm gone. You know, I'm, I haven't a clue what anybody's talking about then. Wow. So I don't know how you explain that to anybody. I don't know. Yeah, it's such a lived experience thing. Yeah. Now, did I read yeah. that you started an ME group? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... Is that what you did with your anger? <laughs> that's where the anger went. That's where it went. Um, you know, I was lying in the bed and thinking, you know, God, what could we do? And... I was starting to, I didn't even have a laptop until about 10 years into the illness. I had no, no um, contact with the outside world. And um, they bought me a laptop and I had to self-learn how to use it. It took me about not 10 years and I'm still learning. I'm still, um, oh, the group, yeah. So there again, it was my husband and I and we're, we're sitting planning and scheming and didn't know what where to turn and um we had heard about a support group um i forget where it was about 20 miles away i think from here so we went it and that was an, a whole other experience they spent the, i was hardly able to set up right for a start and they spent the whole evening talking about where they were going to go for the weekend and day trips and I was going, I think I'm in the wrong support group here. I can't, I can't do these things, you know. And I went out despondent, thinking, my God, what happened there? What went wrong? And um, I think at that stage then I thought, Tom said to me, I don't think this is what we need, Joan. I says, no, I don't think it is either. I says, right, okay, let's do one for ourselves. So um, um, I got in touch with the local newspaper. And I booked a room in a hotel just about two miles away. And it went in, the article went into the newspaper about my illness, right? It was the first time that I came out and said about my illness. And that night we went in, I didn't know what to expect or even if anybody would turn up. And the, I thought they were never gonna stop coming in through the door. The room just filled up and filled up. I, had never been a public speaker. You know, I didn't know what direction I was going in. I didn't know anything, Scott. And we didn't even have the money. And everybody put a pound in a box to pay for the room. So I just spoke from the heart. I just said what had happened to me. And they were all going, yeah, yeah, and all. And we formed a committee that night, I think. I said, look, I'm gonna need help. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what we're doing, but let's do something. And we formed a committee and the next thing, um, I don't know, the next thing we're, you know, we're organizing conferences and bringing over uh, Stanford University, Harvard, you name it, we've had them here, Open Medicine Foundation. I don't know how it all happened, but it was like the stars lined up and everything just started to fall into place with very, 
very little effort sometimes with a massive effort I don't know how to explain that either um, times have felt like running away but then an opportunity would come and you'd go I cannot um, miss this opportunity for awareness and education and you just did it and it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and now I don't know where we are wow wow and all we did all I did was tell the truth that's all I did from day one in that hotel till today, the truth, as much as my memory will let me remember it, um, just the truth, the truth, the truth. As I say, I'm not a public speaker, I'm not a scientist, I'm not anything. I'm just one patient who got ME. And I'm not going to leave this world quietly. That's it. <laughs> wow. I, I'm feeling the clamped. <laughs> when you tell the story the of verklempt, uh, feeling emotional, like the, that you, um, yeah, it's, it's, what you did, I mean, that's just amazing. I don't know. It was like there was somebody watching over me and it just was all meant to be. And the doors started opening and opening and opening. And this year we have been asked to go and do a presentation in the GP surgery. Now that's massive. And then last week I got a phone call. I wasn't even waking. The phone waking me. And it was a lady who asked me to go and talk for seven and a half minutes at a European health connection for next Wednesday. And you're going, here we go. You know, now we are not begging people to come to our events and listen about Amy and learn about Amy. They want us, Scott. They want us, but we haven't got the stamina to keep it up. That's a bloody problem, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Building capacity yeah. when they come calling. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get a template um, presentation that can be easily adjusted to whoever the audience are. Do you know what I mean? Rather than reinventing the wheel every week. Yeah. Have you run into any other folks in your group that have tried the lightning process? Uh, no, just that lady that we, we remained friends. The lightning process didn't take off all that well here in Northern Ireland for some reason. Or if it did, the people are too ashamed to say that they went, which I can totally understand. Mm -hmm. That could be a problem, you know? How is the government support and terms of both ME research funding and in terms of supports for like your your group right zero research in Northern Ireland completely zero any research that would happen would be happening in England but we're working on that too that first meeting right and at that time then I started to find all these people in Northern Ireland who had been doing it for, excuse me, 10 or 15 years, advocating and trying to get services. Nobody had got anywhere. I think it was buying an oven or something. And um, my phone rang. And it was a gentleman and he said to me, Joe McParland, I said, yeah. He says, I'm Horace Reid. I can give his name because we're the best of friends. And Horace was a great man for... Um, the Northern Ireland Amy Association. He was on the committee in that at the time, just when I come along. And he said, you see what you're doing uh, with the conferences and all that? I said, yeah. 
he says, keep on doing it because you're doing what's right. And that was a big boost because I felt so, you know, so tiny and insignificant. And there was this man from the Northern Ireland Emmy Association telling me I'm great. <laughs> and that was a real boost, you know, for him to do that. And I thought, right, I'll keep on fighting on. And it turned out then Horace ended up on our committee because they are a group closed down and has been a great advocate and friend and advisor all these years, you know. Now, I forget the question again. Yes, so from 2011 then, uh, when I met Horace and he started to educate me on the history of Northern Ireland and what had been going on, um, then we, we went together and was about three other people, I can't even remember who, to meet with the Health and Social Care Board. That would be the commissioners for health here. And I was sitting like a wee mouse, Scott. I was afraid to talk. I was afraid to say anything. I just sat and learned and observed at that stage. And then um, nothing was happening. We kept meeting them and meeting them. Nothing was happening. And then uh, the chairperson of our uh, charity now went and asked an organization called the Patient Plan Council to help us. And they are an organization, they're part of the health, they're part of the Department of Health, but they are supposed to represent the patient voice. So they started to come then to meetings with us and back us up and make the commissioners more accountable. And at that stage, things started to change and people started to listen because we had their backing. And that was in 2013. In 2018 at our conference, um, the Chief Medical Officer for Northern Ireland opened that conference. At that conference, it was announced a new ME clinical lead for Northern Ireland was being interviewed for the next day. <clears throat> and that was 15 months ago. And the, the clinic still isn't set up in operation. But they're supposed to be working on it. But if it had been left us, would have had it sorted by now, you know? So it's all it's all happening in Northern Ireland. It's all happening. We're just waiting on a big um, press release in the newspapers about this new clinic, and we will be able to work with the um, the consultant that'll be in charge. It's it's very exciting, but the big downer is it's only a part time post, and it's it will be developed, and there's nothing for kids, and also we have a multitude of work to do yet there, you know. So a lot of the work is going to fall on the patients and their families, the so volunteers. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah, we're all volunteers. We're all volunteers. But doctors are sending patients to us now. They're sending patients to the monthly meetings. Oh, wow. So that's validating. Yeah, but there's nowhere else to send them, you know. Yeah. There's no clinic, so they're sending them to other patients where they will get the best support, really, you know. In terms of your own health, what have you found that helps other than needing to spend a lot of time being horizontal? Yeah. Well, while horizontal complete shutdown, I mean, curtains closed, phones off, doors closed, don't anybody even think of coming into the room till you're ready to get up again. Um, so it's not just lay down, it's complete shutdown, lay down. What's the other thing? Recently, just recently, now I've tried 
antivirals. I've tried antiretrovirals. Tell me about the antiretrovirals, because those are for HIV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would explain it. Another friend started them first. And she got good results. Now, not cured, far from cured, but she was severe. And she's up now to somewhere between moderate and severe. So it took her up a level. It took her up a certain level and then it stopped. Um, and she's holding that. She's actually holding that, but she's very, very good at pacing and diet. And she's very good at all that stuff. Um, the cost, they were very, very expensive. I can't remember, uh, maybe, about, maybe about 300 pounds a month. I think, yeah, it was about three, maybe four. I can't remember. That's only a number of years ago. So again, I desperately wanted these to work because it worked for, well, not worked, but they had greatly improved the health of my other ME friend. So um, I took them, nothing happened for the first week or two. And then I started to feel worse. And I talked to my consultant and that he said, look, don't worry, sometimes you can feel worse before you get better. And I persisted on and on and on till I, I couldn't even breathe. One day when I got up, I was leaning over the washing basin trying to breathe. And I thought, right, that's it. You know, stop this before you kill yourself. So I stopped them. And then I gathered myself up and about six months later, I tried them again. You know, you, you don't give up easy in this case. So I tried them again. <laughs> Same thing, really, really bad rang the consultant and I said, look, I really can't take any more. What should I do? Should I persist? And is this a Herx reaction or what's happening to me? I said, I'm not a wimp, but this is scary. So um, he said, no, look, end it. End it now. So that was the end of them. And I thought, right, that's an hour notched down. But it still didn't annoy me as much as the lightning process because it didn't mess with my head, Scott. So your son, uh, how old's your son now and how is he sort of, uh, how did he manage for all those years when his mom was so ill? He's 32 now and it, it had a big marked impact on his life because when I got sick, he was going from preschool here to high school, you know, changing from junior school to whatever you call it over there, adult school and it had an awful effect on him an awful effect um because we were very close say those days he hadn't friends here it would have been him and i out in the garden playing tennis and different things you know mother son one son he was the center of the universe as far as i'm concerned you know so um it had an awful effect on him it really had um, he is a quiet lad, so he doesn't talk a lot about his feelings. But when there's any conferences going on, or I need, you know, I need help, he's there. But I know my own child and I know the effect that it had on him. That would give me more to fight on than nearly anything. You know, I would do anything to take that pain that he had to go through away from him. You know, and I spent years, I remember spending years trying to hide the illness. How the hell do you hide any? I don't know. 
if I would if I would have collapsed, say, in the house or says to him, go on down to your granny's for a wee while, because granny just lives, you know, next door. And I would try and shield him and not let him see the worst of it. And, you know, I was trying to protect my child. And I'm very, very angry that I couldn't protect him from it. That's a big factor in why I, I do the advocacy, uh, Scott. Oh, God. Yeah. No, no kid needs to see their mom laying like a vegetable in the bed. They don't need to see that. I don't know how the parents cope because if it had been Stephen, I don't think I, I don't know what I'd have done. I, I don't think I could have coped. I suppose you would, like everything else you think you can't go through. But if that child had a God AME, I don't know. I would have murdered somebody in the health service by now. Really would. Yeah, just because there's no support, they undermine, they gaslight. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of, uh, in the UK generally, and I'm not sure if it's happening in Northern Ireland as well, that some parents, and it's usually the mother, gets accused of fabricating illness in their child that yeah. has ME, and then they get the child taken away, and it just turns into a, a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Well, we have um, a number in our group. We have parents in our group, but they must keep very low-key. They can't put their head up above the precipice or they're, they're, they're shot. Um, they, have to, they have to nearly play along with the mental health services, not cause a fuss. You know, don't fight too hard. They nearly have to do that. But so that's why we're hoping when the adult services get up and the awareness does go out in Northern Ireland that those parents will have an easier time. You know, they have a big fight trying to get the children home tuition. and It's horrible for them. And they are scared. They, they don't make a fuss, Scott. You just keep quiet. I can only just imagine how frightened they are for their ill child and then have on top of that the, the fear of having that sick child taken away under misguided ideas. Yeah. Yeah, there are big cases that have happened that are highlighted in England now more than here. Um, I don't actually know anybody has had a kid taken off them in Northern Ireland, but I know a few have come close to it. But we have somebody that we can bring in from England, sort of negotiate with the, the, the mental health teams and that. And most times they win, but it's a, it's a, a very, very dodgy place to be. Uh, so just a final word, and maybe it's a word of warning for folks who are listening, if they happen to, and they have ME or any other disease that the lightning process contends that they will cure, what's your message to those folks? I, I would be, I'm so scared of killing people's hope, but at the same time, I don't want them to go through what I went through with it. Yeah, with false hope. With false hope, yeah. All I can say is to try and weigh it up before you make the decision, try and weigh it up. Uh, put yourself in a place where you have cancer that you can go and have an x-ray and people can show you the disease in their body and then think, would I go and do the lightning process from that place? And just remember that that's what ME is, only you can't see it yet but you will someday soon.
Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a physical disease and you're not going to treat yes. it or cure it with psychological tricks. Never. No, never. And sit down and think rationally, Can what do you expect 10 hours of talking to a life coach with no medical experience? Do you really think, before you spend that money, before you build up your hopes, do you really think that somebody's going to be able to talk you out this disease or talk you into curing yourself you know yeah. you have this physical disease that nobody can x-ray or put a picture on or show you your blood test but it's there and it cannot be talked out of your body well thanks to joan mcparlin for sharing her experience with psychological snake oil and telling the truth about how standing on a piece of paper didn't cure her illness you can support the podcast by subscribing on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need a counselor for your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others.